Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston on News Talk. Hello there and welcome to Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. I'm going to be keeping you company for the next hour or so. And we've got some great guests lined up for you. Coming up on today's show, this. Well, I know it's not usual for a Prime Minister to come back in this way, but I believe in public service. The Prime Minister asked me to do this job. Yes, David Cameron was catapulted back into British politics. And what does it say about Rishi Sunak's leadership, his struggles, and what now for the embattled Tory party as they deal with the fallout from the Supreme Court ruling on Rwanda? Well, Sir John Curtis is the best man for the job to decipher all of this for us, and he'll be joining me later on in the programme. Ireland is struggling to cut emissions, to say the least. This is according to a new report by PwC and PwC's David McGee will be joining me with Murren Lynch from the ESRI to discuss all of their views and buying silence, how oligarchs, corporations and plutocrats use the law to gag their critics. The author of a new book on the subject, David Hooper, will be joining me later to discuss the growing trend of lawsuits designed to censor. As always, you can email me at takingstock at newstalk.com. We're also open on Twitter at StockNT. Now, first up today, we're going to start with that issue of carbon emission targets because there was quite a startling revelation earlier this week when apparently the global economy must now accelerate its emissions reduction by a staggering seven times the current rate if it's to avoid and combat climate change in any real and effective way. This uh, comes from a PwC Global report and and it does paint a a picture of the world that's really struggling to try and rein in its carbon footprint. Well, here to delve into these issues are David McGee of PwC and he's the Environmental, Social and Governance Lead there and Murren Lynch, who's the Energy Economist at the ESRI. Thank you both very much for joining us today. Good to be here. David, I'm going to start with you. You might just kick us off with a reminder about the the global targets and indeed what the Irish targets for carbon reduction are and tell us what the report set out about the status as it is now. So this is our 15th year of running our net zero economy index and it's it's a global measure to try to see is the world succeeding in its decarbonisation journey, right, to try to get to net zero and limit global warming to 1.5 degrees in line with Paris. And and what we found this year, as we found last year and the year before and the year before that, is that we are not going fast enough, right? Um, And while the world achieved a decarbonisation rate last year of 2.5%, we'd actually, as as you said in your intro, we would need to get a a, a rate of 17.2% to hit the target. No no economy in the world has ever decarbonized at a rate of 17.2%. And last year, our report said 15, and the year before it said 13. If you imagine we are a car driving, we are driving too slowly. So every time we take a rest stop, we're going to have to speed up to make the distance. And that's, that's in an essence, what we're saying on a global level. Mm. And what about Ireland then, David? Yeah, so we looked at some of the EPA data and there was, a, uh, like we decarbonised in Ireland by about 2% last year, so slightly behind the global number. Um, but we are way off where we need to get to. If you take the current the current activities we're doing across all of the big emitting sectors, we would get to a number of about 29% reduction by 2030. Enshrined in law in the Climate Act, we're supposed to get to 51. So we're going to have a big miss in Ireland as well, mm. in line with the rest of the planet. Mirren, these these figures and uh, the statistics don't lie. They just all add up to sort of incredulity about what the actual targets are. But in fairness, there's no lack of political will around 
you know, doing something about all of this, but we're just not making enough progress when you look at those figures. What are the implications, if any, of missing these targets for Ireland? Well, I mean, globally, we all know what happens if globally we don't we don't deal with this problem. Then we're facing um, climate change, which could, you know, it will certainly have impacts and those impacts could be catastrophic depending on how badly we let it get. For Ireland specifically, what Ireland has done is we've passed legislation that makes these climate targets legally binding. So the government has legally obliged itself to meet these targets. And we're not even close to on track. If you look at the projections for the electricity sector, for example, the entire carbon budget, which is meant to get us out to 2030, um, is going to be gone by um, Mm. 2029. And that's with the best will in the world. Mm. So that means that technically Ireland is legally obliged to have a net zero electricity sector by 2030. I mean, it it just it it's just staggering the amount um how far away we are from these targets that we've set for ourselves and codified into legislation. And that's what I mean. It just all adds up to a picture that the, the, the figures just aren't credible. Um is there any sense that people will, you know, reassess or reset because it's just not attainable? Well, I think part of the problem is we, we are really good at setting these targets, <laughs> but the follow up policies just aren't there. Um, and I think as well, there's a kind of an idea that people talk an awful lot about a just transition, and I'm very supportive of a just transition, but it means different things to different people. And for some people, a just transition essentially means we'll get rid of all our carbon emissions without impacting on anybody's standard of living. Mm. And that's unfortunately impossible. A lot of people still seem to think that the problem is industry, mm. that it's commercial activity, that it's big business, it's all about the data centers. Actually, the residential sector in Ireland accounts for 27.5% of our emissions. So more than a quarter of our emissions come from the residential sector. Mm-hmm. If we look at transport, which is the largest sector, it, it, transport is responsible for 34% of our emissions. And again, people think, well, that's the big trucks, that's the aviation. No, actually, 43% of those emissions are from private cars. Mm-hmm. Not even things like taxis or buses. Private cars, so just people driving around, going up to the GAA club, going in and out to work, going down to the shopping centre. So the reality is, we, if we want to meet these targets, we have to accept that all of us have to do something. All of us are going to have to change our behaviour and all of us are going to see impacts on our standard of living. It's simply not possible to meet these targets without having any impact on anyone other than big business, for example. That's a really great point about personal responsibility. And David, I'll bring you in here. The SEAI were out this week talking a little bit more about that than I've seen a lot of agencies doing over the last couple of years. Uh, They were talking about, you know, asking and urging people to think about SUVs and our obsession with buying them here in Ireland. Also talking about personal responsibility on limiting flights and some something. So in fairness to them, they're taking a stab about that personal responsibility message. But do you think that politicians still don't uh, and are not willing to drill that message down into the public? And, and do you think that if they did that, we might see more progress uh, instead of just depending on industry and renewables to kind of make all the changes? Yeah, I, I agree with Muren. I think we, there are some really difficult choices. I mean, if we are not going fast enough and every year we're not going fast enough to decarbonise, we're going to have to make some really hard choices. And and let's face it, politicians 
don't like making hard long-term choices. Like the system is not set up to to deliver that. Um, if you take a couple of the areas that we've kind of touched on already, like on electricity generation, like again, enshrined in one part of government plans is a plan to put five megawatts of offshore power, offshore wind power by 2030. And yet we are spectacularly failing uh, to get projects off the ground and out into the sea um, to, to bring that online. That five megawatts would be enough to power double the number of households we have today on the island mm. um so we we just we just can't seem to take those actions quickly enough at the state at the corporate or at the individual level Marin Eamon Ryan was out this week talking about that lack of um progress around the renewable sector here and he essentially was saying look it's the planning system that's not working it always amazes me when government blame the planning system which they're in charge of but he did say that there's a new bill coming on stream and it will solve that do you think that that has the capacity to actually vastly accelerate renewable energy projects here or do we have the manpower and the skill set to do that yeah so i think the the new legislation will certainly address some of the issues um around kind of the regulations and stuff in the planning sector but uh, a huge part of the problem also seems to just be the fact that kind of the onboard panola is not sufficiently resourced. There are other state bodies like the National Parks and Wildlife Service um, that are all involved in getting these projects off the ground. So legislative change is very, very welcome. Um, not in order to get rid of planning regulations at all. Mm. We're not talking about anything even close to that <laughs> to that reality, but simply about trying to streamline some of the legislative um, and, and the, the application processes and that kind of thing. But unless we also beef up the state agencies and enable them to get through the kind of applications that they need to get through at the speed they need to get them through, then all of the legislative change in the world won't do anything. You have to back it up with resources. But I think we have to mention as well that there are a huge number of renewable energy projects that do have planning permission and that do have grid connections and that simply didn't enter the last renewable energy auction. Um, and that is part of the reason why the prices are clearing so high. And it is a mystery to me how there are so many projects that could get um, get renewable energy contracts and connect to the system. And it's nothing to do with the planning system because they've already got the planning permission. So I really think we have to figure out what's going on there as well. And do you have any thoughts, Marin, as to why that might be happening? So there are some extra things. Kind of, You need two, two different types of planning permission. You need planning permission for the project. And then you also need planning permission for the grid connection. Mm. So there's still some uncertainty around there and there's still some risk around there. So I don't want to kind of completely dismiss industry's concerns. But at the same time, I am getting pretty suspicious that there's just insufficient competition in the renewable energy market itself. Um, We saw the offshore wind energy auction that we held cleared at a very favorable price. Mm. And there was a lot of competition from international players. So I'm, I'm starting to wonder whether or not we just need to improve competition within the auctions themselves. That's not the only thing we need to do. We also need to de- address other delays and that kind of thing. But it's not all on the planning side is what I'd say. David, can I just go back to the report itself for a little bit um, and ask you what your assessment of, of other barriers maybe that you're coming across that are stymieing progress or accelerating the pace of change that politicians and policymakers have been hoping to see? Uh, look, like so remember it's a global report mm. right and and we look across what we saw last year is some glimmer of hope on a global level 
uh, particularly south of the equator, on renewable energy. Right, So we saw a 24% improvement in solar and a 13% improvement in, in wind. And that's that's good and that's welcomed, but it's way too slow. The, the planet is trying to solve five big problems. How we feed ourselves, how we make things, how we move ourselves, how we build things. And then the fifth one is how you wrap the energy around uh, to do all that. Fixing the energy problem, we know uh, to the point Merlin's just made, we technically know how to do that. We could have some improvements in batteries would be good, but actually fundamentally we understand the technology to do that. It's a problem of capital allocation and getting capital projects done. Mm. Um, but it's an enormous amount of money. Like, the estimates range all over the place, but about $80 trillion or about the entire GDP of the world in 2020 to fix the energy part of those five big problems we're trying to solve. So it's a It'll be the biggest movement of capital in the world ever if we can get it right. But but there are there are lots of other things that need to happen apart from just having the, the financial capital ready to go to make those projects happen. Mm. Marin, of course, a lot of the renewable energy adoption and progress that's being made is in huge countries like China and the US. Is there anything we can learn from them or should should be doing here? Is it all about scale, really? So in terms of the capital costs, it is about scale for sure. But what we're what we're seeing now is we're heading into this high interest rate environment and high inflationary environment. We had been enjoying very low mm. interest rates for a long time, um, and because something like a wind turbine or something is very high capital costs, the way a lot of these are financed is by debt finance. So someone goes and borrows money in order to build a renewable energy project. So that means that if interest rates go up, then costs go up automatically. So I think we're going to have to start to figure out how do we adapt in this new high interest rate environment. How do we design our markets better in order to get these energy projects to trade with each other in a more efficient way, which brings down prices for consumers as well? Um, and there are certainly things we can learn from U.S. markets in particular. They are much better at um, handling um, congestion in the grid in terms of how they price renewable energy. We don't do any of that in Europe. There's strong political opposition to it. But U.S. markets also aren't perfect in that they're really, really bad at building the likes of transmission lines Whereas we're much better at that in Europe because we have an awful lot more cooperation between European states than certain states in the US would have between each other, for mm. example. Yeah, I was talking to a large company there the other day who were saying, like, actually, it's much easier to do business there as well. So so maybe the bureaucracy elements are, are quite different. David, we're going to have to wrap up here. But before I do, um, the report emphasises a lot about bold and disruptive action uh, in global development. What type of things do you mean? Number one, public policy, right, and trying to act faster and create more both carrots and sticks for various actors at various levels in the economy to, to move more. I think there's there's definitely um, parts of the financial system in terms of that deployment of capital to green projects, and we're starting to see moves both at national and supranational levels on that. We need individual actors, in like whether that's consumers or corporates, to make the right decisions and to move. I also think the one I would put in there mm. is there is a huge volume of activity out there around technology and innovation. So we found in the Republic alone over two, almost 250 climate tech companies in a report we did with Sustainability Works earlier in the year. And, and those are companies just in Ireland who are actively out there trying to figure out 
technological and innovative ways to, to, to help solve the problem. I wouldn't be pinning all my hopes on it because we still need to take the actions that, that we've talked about earlier in the in the discussion. But I think, you know, continuing to invest in that area as well is important. Absolutely. Every element is important and everything helps. But for now, we're going to have to leave it there. My thanks to David McGee, who's PwC's Environmental, Social and Governance Lead, and also to Merrin Lynch, Energy Economist at the ESRI. Thank you both very much for joining me today. Thanks. Thank you. You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock. SLAP. It's a law designed to stop critics in their tracks, and we'll be hearing all about how it works after this short break. Welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, we're going to be talking about slaps. And just to clarify, you haven't tuned into the wrong programme. We're not speaking about spanking, but rather strategic lawsuits against public participation. It's called slap. In other words, lawsuits that are often brought about by, against journalists or watchdogs or anyone who's actually saying something about someone else that they don't like. Well, David Hooper is a UK libel lawyer with over 40 years of experience and he's just published a fascinating book that looks at the history of slaps and it's called Buying Silence, How Oligarchs, Corporations and Plutocrats Use the Law to Gag Their Critics. And I'm delighted to be joined on the line by David now. Hello, David. Thank you very much for inviting me on. You're very, very welcome. David, just to kick off before we get into the book, you might just give us um, the difference between what we understand as normal defamation or liable cases and a slaps. Well, the principal feature of slaps is that they are brought by very wealthy and powerful people with the aim of exhausting the resources of the defendant so that they get a settlement at an early stage. And very often the, there is this feature that they're not really interested in vindicating their reputation, which would be the position with you or I if we sued, but really in just silencing the other side and not only win, winning that case that way, but making sure that uh, when people are thinking, do we do a broadcast on this? Do we write an article on this? They say, no, that person is too high risk. And that was exploited uh, at, in great detail in our country by Russian oligarchs, including even Mr. Prizhogin, uh, who is the head of Wagner Mercenary Corporation. Yes, and there's a fascinating story in the book uh, about all that, which we'll go into in a second. But uh, yeah, just to to clarify again, this is more really about a proactive threat than a retrospective um, look back at something. It's a kind of warning and, and, and putting that out there. But I just wanted to try and understand when um, these type of cases began. Are they a new phenomenon or have they existed for some time? Well, you can see the origin of them towards the end of the 1980s where various Russian mobsters started suing in England. And you also got powerful people like Sir James Goldsmith and Mohammed Fayed, who would throw a lot of money at these cases and would, um, if you had a book, they would threaten all the book uh, bookstalls so that it, it, could, it couldn't get, get out there. The actual term slap was invented and identified in America um, in the 1990s or mid to, to late 1990s. And it, it actually originated not so much with libel cases, but with um, in env environmental 
cases where if you had action groups, uh, these powerful corporations would turn on them um, and suppress the objections they might be making quite legitimately on environmental grounds. Mm. And of course, then the might of the corporation is significant in terms of finance where NGOs wouldn't be in the same or similar position. Now, you mentioned there the now deceased Mohammed Al-Fayed and you were involved yourself in a very famous case uh, with Vanity Fair and the man himself. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, it was was an article that um, explained uh, quite reasonably um, how badly he treated his staff and how badly he treated women. Um, and it, it exposed uh, racism and and also real Me Too behaviour. And he thought that by um, uh, bringing uh, uh, lots of claims against us that he could suppress us. But um, in the end, uh, he backed down and and settle the case. But uh, it was quite intimidating. Um, it was quite intimidating fighting against him. I mean, at one stage, he even tried to get me arrested uh, because uh, he sent somebody around um, who was from his security department saying they had a compromising video. Mm. Um, and when I said, could I, they see it, they accused me of trying to receive stolen property, mm. even though the tape didn't exist. I mean, that was the sort of tactics they got up to, anything they could do. I mean, they weren't interested in a remedy or vindication. They were just trying to silence us. And and terribly paranoid about the whole thing and afraid that they were being recorded. Absolutely. right. When the settlement negotiations took place, the two participants had to go to a Turkish bath with no clothes on, so that they they couldn't have uh, there could be no question of a, of being wired up. So they sat in the steam room and negotiated a settlement where Fired effectively just dropped the case. Yeah. It wasn't. It was Fired's press spokesman. Uh, we we didn't actually have to go into the sauna with. Um, with fired himself. Well, I'm sure that was a great relief. Now, you, you mentioned earlier um, Yevgeny Prigozhin, the, the the leader of the Wagner Group, who's now also deceased. And he also uh, was attempting to bring about a slap. Can you just talk us through what that was about? And, and how does someone like that set about uh, re- rescuing a reputation in, in this way? That was the most scandalous case because there were two things he was complaining about. One uh, was that he had interfered with the American election by having this troll farm called the Internet Research Agency. And he also denied that he had anything to do with the Wagner uh, mercenary group, only six months later to boast about how he had founded founded both of them. Mm. And the shocking thing was that there were lawyers willing uh, to act for him, a firm called Discreet Law was willing to act for him. Although by that stage, he had been indicted by the Americans and he had been sanctioned. And it was breathtakingly obvious that he he was the head honcho of the mercenary group and they were killing people, recruiting from jails, they were, uh, and committing uh, war crimes, uh, not only in Ukraine, but also 
um, in um, sub-Saharan Africa. Oh, absolutely extraordinary. If you're just tuning in, folks, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock, and I'm speaking to David Hooper, who is a UK libel lawyer with over 40 years experience. And he's just published a new and fascinating book that looks at the history of slaps, and it's called Buying Silence. David, um, you mentioned the legal profession there, and if there's no shortage of people now with enough money to take these type of cases to silence and censor people, there's no shortage of lawyers offering their service. Um, it hasn't always covered itself in glory in terms of a profession, uh, has it really? These cases are much too expensive um, because... I mean, libel is not, I mean, you obviously, it's a specialist area, but I mean, it's not a particularly complicated area of law. And yet you have the burden of pro- proving that what you said is true. And once these claims are too easily made and allowed to run for too long, but, and judges will throw them out in the end on public interest grants, but very often... £500,000 has been spent on there. Bill Browder, uh, who was persecuted by the Russians, they set up some Russian policemen to sue him. And it had cost between 500000 and a million pounds before the case was thrown out. And he never got that money back. Mm. He was able to pay. But of course, most of us don't have that sort of money sitting in our bank account. Mm, yeah, no, that that that's a, an interesting point. Um, you've been in this area of of law for forty years or more, and what other encounters have you had on a personal level? Maybe unpleasant things that have happened to you in this line of work, because you're in the middle here, defending these publications against these very powerful people. Well, I suppose the most. Um, extraordinary experience I had was um, acting for the American publication Forbes magazine when they were sued by uh, an oligarch who eventually ended up living in England and indeed being murdered in England by by the Russians um, called Boris Berezovsky. And I mean, the problem when you are sued by somebody with links to organised crime of the sort that he had is that you you have the burden of proof, but which sensible Russian is going to come and give evidence in the High Court in England? I, I mean, we went mm. went around. I had to have an armed bodyguard when when I went around to get evidence, um, and people were willing to talk to you. But when you said, "Would you like to come and put your head above the parapet?" It's a different very story. Understandably, they didn't want to because they had a nasty habit of exiting through. Uh, fifth floor windows. Mm. Yeah, yeah, you can understand why uh, they they might be very scared in, in that situation. Um, look, this is very clearly on the rise. As you say, it's been around since since the 1980s, but it, it's definitely getting more prevalent. You know, we see it here in the Irish news from time to time as well now. Um, do you think that it is because people are more aware of it, people have more money, or do you think that there are more channels to be offended on now, like the likes of of Twitter, as we saw with the, the Wagner Group leader? Um, what, what do you put this increase down to? I think it's the, the, the power of money, and, uh, and people do get very worried about what is said on, on social media. But my feeling with the, these people is that they have PR... Um, advisors, um, they have good good publicity and bad publicity, and 
think people should be able to live a bit more with uh, bad publicity. I, I think one, what one really wants to achieve at the end is, is to balance the importance of the public. Now, I mean, not only is it freedom of speech, but it's also the, the right to information. Mm. I mean, people should know uh, what these oligarchs are getting up to. And certainly in England, one of the objectionable features of their conduct was they were paying so much to our political parties. So, um, so you need to balance, um, is it essential for them to have remedy? Um, or is there a public interest in allowing people to know, know more about them? Mm. And we're living in an era where reputation is, is sedulously guarded and so important to those big corporations um, and privacy to those type of oligarchs as well. Um, just on that point then, you've mentioned the burden of proof a couple of times. Is there any sense that you have that maybe in the UK or even in a European context, there might be moves to make it a bit harder for people to take this type of case? Well, we we have um, introduced um, in this country um, some changes which um, recognise the existence of slaps, but they're not going to cover everything. And I think they're going to give rise to a, a lot of uh, le- legal argument. So um, I think slaps are going to be um, around for a bit, but... Uh, what we've also had are the uh, solicitors' regulatory authority saying that the sort of aggressive uh, behaviour um, that one's seen in the past um, should no longer be allowed. So one hopes that uh, there is going to be a movement uh, towards there being less slaps, but... I'm not holding my breath as yet. Well, it is a fascinating book if you're looking out for a Christmas present for someone who's interested in the media or business or law. Um, It's one of those books you can pick up and read an entire chapter, put it down and come back to it. It's called Buying Silence, How Oligarchs, Corporations and Plutocrats Use the Law to Gag Their Critics. And I was delighted to be joined there by its author, David Hooper. David, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you very much indeed. You're listening to Taking Stock here on News Talk. Coming up, Braverman is out and Cameron is back in. We'll be assessing yet another extraordinary week in UK politics right after this break. You're welcome back to News Talk's Taking Stock. Now, for our final item today, we turn to the UK. Suella Braverman has been sacked. We now have former Prime Minister Lord David Cameron appointed as Foreign Secretary. Their inflation rate is down. The Supreme Court has ruled against their Rwanda plan and it's been a rather chaotic week overall for the UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. Well, who better to guide us through this chaos than Sir John Curtis, who is polling expert and Professor of Politics at the University of Strathclyde. John, you're very welcome back to Taking Stock. Nice to talk to you, Mandy. Now, John, your area of expertise, and we love talking to you about it, is polls. So I'm going to start there and try and get a bit of context on this for this week. The Tories in the polls not doing well at all. Little or movement since Liz Truss. I think it's 24% the last figure I saw. But you might just give us a sense of where the Tory party are at and if those type of figures were realised in the general election, what it would mean for them, because I think it's important to understand where we're starting. Sure. Um, I mean, if you take the average of recent opinion polls, we're looking at the Conservatives at about 25%, Labour at about 45%, 
In other words, there's something like a 20-point Labour lead. And if anything, over the course of the last six weeks or so, uh, the lead has been expanding a little bit. It's been typically around the 17 or 18-point mark. But mm. um, the truth is that, yep, 20 points is pretty much what it was by November of last year, i.e. Uh, once um, Liz Truss had vacated 10 Downing Street and Mr Sunak had begun to put his feet underneath the uh, cabinet table as uh, prime minister. And no, there is no doubt that one of increasing concern amongst conservative MPs, and it was a concern that was voiced by Suella Braverman in her uh, uh, somewhat incendiary uh, <laughs> resignation letter, um, uh, that you know, Mr Sunak has not succeeded so far in making any significant progress in narrowing uh, Labour's lead over the Conservatives, and that, uh, I mean, there's a little bit of guesswork involved given our single-member priority system and mm. given the way in which it might, but, you know, you know, some people would say we are heading for a three-figure uh, Labour majority, uh, certainly not inconceivable on those kinds of numbers, and that the Conservatives may well find themselves maybe in an even more difficult situation uh, than they were after the 1997 election when they were uh, down to just below 200 seats with about 31% of the vote. Which would be an incredible swing. So against that backdrop, Rishi Sunak brings back David Cameron. In your yep. view, what was that appointment designed to do? I think it was designed to, first of all, bring into government uh, somebody with considerable experience of foreign affairs by a prime minister who, frankly, his political career has been primarily focused on the domestic agenda, um, and he's not somebody who's uh, ever evinced a, a wider interest in uh, in in, uh, in foreign affairs. So I think that's probably point number one. Point number two is, once he had decided, and we now think that happened in on Tuesday of last week, that he wanted to remove Suella Braverman, he needed to find somebody who he was going to appoint as foreign secretary, who, as it were, would clearly trump the current incumbent, which was James Cleverley, because Mr. Cleverley had made it rather clear uh, earlier this year when there were rumours that perhaps he would be moved, that he quite liked being foreign secretary and would like to keep the post. Well, <laughs> Being an ex-prime minister is perhaps the one move you can make to gently say, well, actually, no, I found somebody with even more experience. And, of course, he wanted to move Mr. Cleverly, who is somewhat more nuanced and more careful in his language than uh, Ms. Braverman has uh, tended to be um, uh, into the Home Office. What I don't think it was, but the question that many a journalist was asking was that it was designed as some magic silver bullet that would restore the Conservatives' rather sad uh, electoral fortunes. Not least because if you were wanting to do that, if you were wanting to introduce somebody into your government in the hope that they might improve your ability to fight on the domestic political battle, the last position to which you would appoint them, other than Chief Whip, which of course is basically a role in which the person doesn't speak at all, is to make them Foreign Secretary. Because as Foreign Secretary, Lord Cameron will be largely pursuing mm. foreign policy on which government and the opposition tend to agree at the moment on the two big conflicts in Ukraine and in the Middle East, both the 
government and the opposition leadership are on the same page. The foreign secretary is there to deal with Britain's interests and to some degree irrespective of the partisan colour of the government. And also, of course, by the way, being foreign secretary, you're out of the country quite a lot. So the truth is, it's not clear that this is the position into which you would put somebody. And then, I mean, Lord Cameron is not deeply unpopular, but frankly, he's not significantly more popular on such polling as we've got more recently than Mr. Sunak himself. So all the way around, you know, frankly, I don't think anybody expects this to make any difference at all um, in terms of uh, the Conservatives' um, electoral position. Now, of course, you know, it may be that Mr. L that Lord Cameron, you know, does a brilliant job as Foreign Secretary and maybe he does such a brilliant job that he proves to be an effective campaigner. But, you know, yes, he, he did manage to win a couple of elections, but he then did manage to lose a rather important referendum, i.e. on Brexit. Yeah, well, for David Cameron, it's a, it's a chance for a, a little bit of a re rehabilitation. Sure. You know, prime ministers always have some legacy and his will be Brexit no, no matter what. So this is an opportunity, I suppose, for him maybe to present Britain better on the world stage than it has been of late. But, you know, in fairness to Rishi Sunak, he has inherited lots of bad things from, from Johnson, the Ru Rwanda policy being one of them, and we'll come back to that in a second. Sure. But he also, he also inherited a very broad-based party um, the Red Wall, the Tories, all of that. Do you think there's any part of the appointment of David Cameron that might be designed to reset the more blue wing of the party, a sort of brand reset towards that, um, and that he's kind of trying to concentrate on core votes? To be honest, I, I mean, I've, I've heard that argument and I, I just don't think it works. Look, mm. Um, what you have to understand, you shouldn't you shouldn't confuse constituencies with individuals. Mm. All right, even in so-called blue wall constituencies, most people who voted Conservative in 2019 were remain supporters. Right? Um, if you look into in terms of people's current preference back in 2019, uh, I mean, on some of the polls, I mean, the Conservatives were only getting about the support of about 15% of people who were in, in favour of Remain, because the truth is, by that stage, if you were in favour of being inside the European Union, unless you were a real loyal Tory, you weren't going to vote for the Conservative Party. What the, the problem the Conservative Party has is that, I mean, basically, the Conservative Party's support amongst those who voted Remain is pretty much the same now as it was back in 2019, because it was already so low, mm. it hasn't really been compared to What's happened is that, you know, Boris Johnson's great success was more or less uniting the bulk of Leave support behind his party. I mean, around 80% of those people who in 2019 were in favour of being outside the European Union voted for the Conservatives. That's how the Conservatives managed to win an overall majority, because the Remain vote was the 80% of people who were opposed to Remain were voting for pro-EU uh, uh, EU parties, but uh, that vote was fragmented between Labour and the Democrats. That's, that's why uh, the 2019 election uh, was won. But now, you know, support for the Conservatives amongst Leave voters is between 30 and 40 points yeah. lower yeah. than it was in 2019. Yeah. So... You know, yeah, that's a, is, that's a really it, fundamental uh, difference, all right. So, yeah, and, yeah. And at the end of the day, the honest truth is, you know, are the Conservatives in trouble because of their ideological position? Short answer, no. The Conservatives are in trouble because of, one, Boris Johnson and Partygate. 
to Liz Truss and, the, and the, her fiscal event and perceptions of the economy and the fact the UK economy is struggling, living standards until very recently have been falling, et cetera, et cetera. GDP is now, what is it, 2% higher than it was four years ago. That's it. It's bare, we've barely grown at all as an economy. And number three, the state of our public services, particularly our health service, which has record waiting lists with about between seven and eight million people waiting for some kind of NHS uh, procedure. Yeah. And those are the problems the government has to address. And in a sense, you know, the point is that, you know, even if people still believe in Brexit and support for Brexit is lower than it was, you know, these other things mean that they are no longer willing to support the Conservative Party because their party is no longer relied upon to be able to run the economy. Uh, yeah, and they're, no, they're, they're no longer relied upon to run the public services and people have doubts about the ethics of the party surrounding Boris Johnson. Yeah, so I think you could add to that maybe the internal strife within the party where they're just completely dysfunctional and can't sure. get themselves yeah, together. Yeah. Wednesday should have been a good day for them um, because they had a bit of good news on the inflation yeah. front. It was one of Rishi Sunak's five key promises to reduce uh, inflation by half and, and they brought it down a lot. Doesn't mean that inflation is eradicated, just means that prices are rising less quickly. Um, but anyway, that was also the day of the Supreme Court ruling on the Rwanda policy. Um, and not to go too far back about this, um, there wasn't very much surprise really at this ruling. I am absolutely flabbergasted at this policy and their insistence on following it, even up to this week. What did you make of Rishi Sunak's um, reaction and his words after the ruling told them that it was unlawful, not just in a European context, not just in a global context, but also in contravention of British law? Yeah, I mean, the judgment was more wide-ranging and more critical than perhaps many people um, had anticipated. Um, but um, the government, or despite a lot of rhetoric until fairly recently, uh, saying, oh, look, we only lost two to one in the Court of Appeal. We'll, we, we were, we're confident of winning in, in, in the uh, Supreme Court. Well, we now know... Again, because of Suella Braverman's uh, resignation letter that, in fact, the government had been preparing for defeat for quite a while. While the government evidently feels that um, it will be able to change the legal position in such a way that it will be able to uh, implement this policy. Now, uh, the truth is it's one of those areas where, you know, when two or three lawyers are gathered together, you'll get five or six different opinions. Um, but, that you know, certainly some lawyers feel that because the court wasn't simply saying, oh, it's the, East, the European Court Convention on Human Rights that stands in your way, but a lot of other international obligations, including treaty obligations, uh, together with aspects of domestic law, that, you know, this is going to be difficult for the government to get around. And certainly, will certainly mean that uh, even if the government tries to change the domestic position, that it might still find itself in the courts and that it won't be able to get the planes going before the election. So, you know... Um, all of that, you know, we know, we have to wait and see. But clearly the government is dubbing down. The government is clearly of the view that because Mr. Sunak made stop the boats, uh, one of his five pledges at the beginning of this year, it's something it has to pursue. Now, however, here, however, we come to a delicious um, uh, irony. Now, your note earlier that although legal, I now quote, remind you, legal immigration to the United Kingdom is currently at a record high 
uh, in the in the post-Brexit environment, despite what Brexit was meant to bring, together with the course of illegal immigration, I did not mention immigration as being one of the things that bringing conservative support down. And there's a simple reason for this. Yes, it's true. Lots of conservative voters are unhappy about the level of both legal and what the government calls illegal immigration, although international lawyers would not say that what the asylum seekers were doing um, is illegal. Now, um, and there's a good reason for that, because you know, if I take 2019 conservative voters and I ask them how well is they think the economy is doing, those who say the economy are doing badly are less likely to say they will vote Conservative again than are those Conservative vote 2019 voters who don't think the economy is doing too badly, right? So there it's perfectly clear. The economy is helping to bring the Conservative vote down. The same is true, same analysis of the NHS. But what you discover, however, whether you look at either legal or so-called illegal immigration, what people think has been happening amongst Conservative 2019 voters is unrelated to their probability of saying they will vote Conservative again. So in other and the same is true about Brexit, by the way. The reason why support for Brexit is lower, it's not because of the fact that immigration is higher, it's because people are no longer quite so sure about the economic consequences of Brexit. So in other words, I think, to be honest, the government is pursuing this issue partly because they're feeling all about benches, certainly the feelings amongst Conservative activists, and the feeling that therefore, surely, surely, you know, this is something in which we can draw a clear dividing line between us and Labour, and this will help us to reconnect with our core electorate. Yeah. Well, maybe, but, but actually, if you look at the causes of where you are at, this is not the place where you would say this is how you are likely to recover your position. No, it, it definitely does not. Listen, um, John, I wanted to ask you about the common sense minister, which I thought was just a basic requirement for entry into politics, never mind government. But we've run out of time now um, and we might, might revisit uh, on another occasion. But for now, we're going to have to leave it there. That was Sir John Curtis, polling expert and professor of politics at the University of Strathclyde. John, thank you very much for being with us today. You're welcome. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. And while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we're always available as a podcast first from Friday mornings on the News Talk app. My thanks, as always, to today's guests for their time and their insights. I also want to thank the producer of Taking Stock, John Fardy, with John Byrne on research and Hugo de Silva Scott on sound. Any comments about today's show, you can get in touch with us via email at takingstock at newstalk.com. Stay tuned for Anton Savage, who's coming up next with all of your Sunday newspapers and lots, lots more. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.